Welcome, everyone, to the Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Just remember, you started this. The Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 102, Mean Right Hook, is brought to you by Trouble and a Paradise, the current criminal hotspot on 188th Street across from Turk Barrett's Gold for Cash. Yeah, Turk Barrett, certainly a highlight in this episode. Pete, let's not dilly-dally, let's jump right in. Let's crack open the case files to see what our defenders had on the docket. We begin, Matt, with the teaser of this episode in the aftermath of the earthquake and a great overhead shot there. We've got Matt Murdock without the Daredevil suit, kind of playing on on, uh, some of the conventions of those earlier shows. We can see from the the subtitles on the dialogue there that all units are being called in on a 1066, whatever that is. We know our listeners out there, some of them know. They're requesting backup immediately. And then he keys in on some people who are up to no good. Yeah, Pete, I have been a little on the show for in the first episode about some of the uh, some of the camera moves, camera work, etc. But this is one that works, that 90-degree angle turn looking down the Manhattan Street as a fire truck moves up, uh, captures the mood well. And uh, pretty quickly from that, from that uh, continuous shot, we have uh, Matt overhearing some mild looting and uh, a multi-gun response by the by the shop owner. I believe it's a uh, it's a uh, pawn shop, and ha- he's suddenly running and ninja rolling and jumping. Um, quick cuts are back, and uh, he's uh, soon enough down on the ground looking to protect the looting kids from the overly zealous pawn shop owners. And uh, we get a little fight unfolding. Yeah, he takes the first guy down with a shotgun and then with a hand up in front of his face, has it behind his back as if to indicate he's not going to hurt them. He tells them not to do it, that they're just kids. They fight. He breathes heavily and then is asked who he is before we get the uh, sideways angle as he leaves to end the teaser. We get the title card. This is uh, a second episode directed by the uh, the vaunted director, S.J. Clarkson. And uh, we return to the episode proper with uh, a shot of Trish calling Jessica Jones. She hasn't heard from Jessica, uh, particularly after this earthquake the evening before. And um, she's leaving a message. She has heard that Hell's Kitchen was particularly hard hit. So uh, showing some concern there for her friend as uh, Trish is on the way to the radio studio. Just a point of fact, uh, she says her neighborhood. Do we know that Jess lives in Hell's Kitchen? Uh, That's certainly been my assumption, yeah. Indeed, Pete, a quick quick check. I guess this is technically non-canonical, but a quick check of the uh, Alias Investigations business card handed out at New York Comic Con says that uh, the business is located in Hell's Kitchen, NYC. So good enough for me. I stand partially corrected. Um, But given that uh, we have a cop that stops Trish, though she's late for work, she's trying to sneak through. Oh, she's welcome to try, Matt, around the gigantic sinkhole with half a car in it. 
Yeah, it was a nice reveal. I'm sure it was, you know, a ton of effort to dig the hole, stick the car in there, whatnot. But for the on-screen effect of we kind of see there's some sort of chaos and there's some sort of crowd and whatnot. But, oh, car down a sinkhole. Um, it's a nice way to say lots and lots of destruction when it's showing one car partially down the sinkhole. Um, anyhow, once Trish gets in the radio studio, she's, she's trying to calm everybody. It's officially come from the mayor's office. This was a 4.6 magnitude earthquake. Um, so I kind of hear that. I go, okay, unusual for the tri-state area, but 4.6, not, you know, not kind of, uh, earth shattering. Uh, then Pete, she takes a call from a geologist who lives in Brooklyn, who says, this isn't how earthquakes are, starts talking about all the facts of it. And then click the line goes dead. Yeah, this was only 300 feet deep that shallow quakes can be up to 50 miles deep. That line disconnected, Matt. Something's going on. We see her producer chatting through the glass there. Uh, and then suddenly the interview with the school superintendent, that's coming on. Uh, the boss says that that's going to happen that the call was cut off because they got a call from upstairs to lay off the earthquake stuff. The tone was not conversational. Pete, it's not paranoia when there's people out to control things and out to get you. That's what we, uh, we're getting the whiff of here. Um, with that, we cut to Misty Knight in a uh, seedy hotel room. Hey, Pete, that's the one from last episode. Explosives are plenty. Uh, there are investigators all over the place, including those from the FBI. You can tell because their jackets say FBI. <laughs> um, and also there is the mildly detained and questioned Jessica Jones. Uh, Detective Stryber tells Misty, go question Jessica Jones yourself. Yeah, her captain uh, says that he only sounds the overtime, uh, which was a great line. And uh, they've got Homeland Security on the way. So obviously this is getting ratcheted up um i found it a little incongruous matt that um misty told captain striber that she knew these bad guys can't say on a uh, non-explicit podcast what she referred to them as were transporting explosives when that never came up before we talked about couriers in the first episode never any idea of what they were carrying yet the implied was drugs, given that that's gone on before with the hand. So um, I don't I don't know where we're suddenly going to. Oh, I knew these guys were transporting explosives. I agree with what you're saying. However, I kind of read it in retrospect. I read it as uh, Misty reached out to Luke and she was not going to give Luke the entire case file. Uh, he's not even a private investigator or anything like that he's an ex-con she's not going to tell him the whole story she took him to see the burned out car to say go mentor this guy be a superhero by you know by being a, a father figure to him um if luke assumed that this was drugs or if we the audience assumed it was drugs okay she didn't say that i kind of liked that it was like we got a previously on the defenders oh except you weren't you the audience weren't privy to this portion that they're aware that something's up um, and it's kind of unfolding in the background a little bit. I was okay with that, particularly if that was their intention. 
Rumor is Jessica isn't scared of much, though, Matt. And uh, they haven't met. That's because uh, we got an interrogation scene coming on in the next 38 minutes. <laughs> uh, indeed. And we uh, we get to see Misty walking in on an ornery Jessica Jones calling the FBI, FBI officer a dip. You know what? And um, side note, Pete, as uh, Jessica Jones finally gets gets let uh, go, uh, the FBI agent commiserates with Misty. You know, can you believe this chick? Um, I initially thought that Misty didn't have a badge on. She actually does have one on her hip, um, but it's not in the shot. I'm just going to mention it because, I mean, Misty's costume, hair, acting, presentation, all fabulous, all wonderful. It was just kind of this moment of, hey, does everybody know she's NYPD? Okay, fair is fair. Got the, got the badge on the hip. That as Jessica grabs something off a clipboard that Misty then notices is a blank chases after her but of course can't catch her we cut to the chikara dojo matt hey i recognize that that's from the iron fist and it looks like there's no damage matt uh despite the fact that uh colleen doesn't have uh earthquake insurance you know you don't need that normally in the new york i think though to be fair pete as I recall, that might be the or wouldn't earthquake insurance be the responsibility of her uh, her landlord, which is uh, I believe if I check through the paperwork here, that's Danny Rand. So, <laughs> look, his generosity it, it spilleth over here it, again in the background, but spilleth over. By the way, Pete, where is Danny Rand? She's looking for him. He's on the floor, uh, earphones in, um, meditating. There, he needed a break. He's refocusing, he explains. However, if he comes across that warrior again, he'll be prepared, you know, Electra. Um, but uh, he was uh, thinking about the guy who, uh, and, and so has Colleen, thought about the guy who uh, died in the sewer there, called Danny the Iron Fist. He knew something. He wasn't just a victim. They think that he is their next lead. Yeah, and there's even this there's this realization between the two of them that this this guy who died in the sewer, somebody trained him to to operate at a high level. Uh, therefore, if the hand killed him, there must be other anti hand forces out there. And uh, Colleen hammers home for Danny and the audience that he is not alone. And Pete, Danny sarcastically wonders if what is there some sort of team to join? You know, to like, I don't know, defend New York. Right. They're getting ready to do the thing, Pete. They're headed towards it. They are. They are. And, uh, you know, he laments as well, still racked with that guilt that, you know, this was his responsibility, his fight. Um, you know, this might not have happened had he not left his post as the guard at the pass of Kunlun. Yeah, a little bit of a uh, little bit of recap there, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Uh, but with all of this, Pete Colleen has an idea: trace the sword, the uh, Sigmato, trace it back to its workshop. And uh, you know, there's only ten of those swords in the world. One of the sword smiths is in New York City. So uh, on that moment, we head back to Matt in his apartment. 
Yeah, heavy breathing there, Matt, washing the blood off. He goes to his Cutman bandage box, trademark, and uh, then smashes it. He feels powerless. He uh, opens the closet, Matt, and uh, the footlocker for the Daredevil outfit and just kind of stands there and, you know, on two viewings... I look back at it like, okay, we understand the character is blind, but that he's opened the gear and he's just standing over it. This clearly isn't a, I'm, I'm looking at it. Like, do I put it on? Well, I think that it, it fits in line with the, the, the sentiment of the scene, which is now he's gone and, and bloodied these knuckles again. Now he's gone and gone out to be the daredevil though though not wearing the costume he's feeling that pull back towards uh back towards that life i'll grant you it's a scene that plays best visually and it's a character who's visually impaired um maybe he's looking at it with the 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 extrasensory vision that he does have um but to me it kind of fit within the scene and in fact pete see i feel like there's been a role reversal here i was a little harsh on that first episode I had a quibble about this scene, and then I, I realized on my second viewing that I was okay with it, and it's this. He had gone out in the middle of the night, you know, right after the, uh, right after the incident had occurred, um, and then now he's come back early morning because all the other timelines are occur- occurring in the early morning. And I, uh, my first reaction was, hey, you know, that doesn't line up time-wise. But, Pete, there's an answer. Perhaps he was out all night. Perhaps he was patrolling perhaps there were more fights that that don't need to be seen um and i kind of like that answer so quibble retracted and with his phone going off telling us it's foggy the scene changes to claire helping a girl as as luke lifts a rather large concrete looking piece of styrofoam and you know what pete that was a very nice practical effects moment clearly we know it's not a giant hunk of concrete it's it's surely styrofoam molded styrofoam at some point that's been painted on a car no less like do you have any idea what that would have done to the car (laughs) wasn't the car banged up no it was just kind of resting on top of it though that that thing would have pancaked that car but the car notwithstanding the scene works the moment works because between mike coulter's heavy lifting acting and off the screen, there's a puff of dust as he puts it down. I'm sure that there's an effects guy with a one of those, you know, those fireplace blower things. So yes. he puts it down, and it just it sells it. It absolutely sells it in a moment where you know it's not real, but they do it in one shot. There's not a wire. It's it's you know it's styrofoam. It works visually. It really really does. Not a lot of people with insurance in Harlem. Uh, but nobody died, we're told, which is, of course, good news. Um, Claire explains that most people would have gotten out of jail and popped a beer. Here, he's trying to help people out. Uh, but he's, of course, thinking about getting back into that life, Matt. He wants to go to Elmore's tonight. That bar on Douglas got a little bit of a reputation for a certain crowd. Seems he might be hunting criminals again. Uh, but the NYPD is not paying him for doing this, Claire points out. Um, 
and that there's this one boy, we know him to be Cole from the previous episode, that he's afraid to ask for help. It's what Pop would have wanted. Um, and with everything there explained and knowing him like she does, she points out that nobody goes to Elmore's anymore. She knows enough from the people she has stitched up at the shelter that the current criminal hotspot is a rat hole called Trouble and a Pair of Dice, which just has an awesome name. Yeah, because it sounds like Trouble in Paradise, too. <laughs> I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, with that, we cut to the soon-to-be-named Alexandra, listening to a string quartet all on her own. Fantastic location overlooking, looks like Central Park to me. Pretty Huge. sure this is Lincoln Center. Okay. It's looking, um, it's looking east across the very bottom of uh, the park, of Central Park. Pete, this is like, this is like in Ghostbusters, Dana Barrett played, played a stringed instrument. I believe it was a cello. She was outside Lincoln Center where she met Peter Venkman along with the guy who looked very pale, needed a little bit more sun. It's all connected, Pete. It's all connected late, on some level. Later in this episode, we have Turk Barrett, Matt. <sighs> Turk Barrett, Dana Barrett. It's all coming together. Um, point being, wonderful practical location, wonderful real musical location. Um, I, it crossed my mind, Pete. This was the kind of uh, musical number I, I wish that they had uh, playing over. Uh, her undressing in the hospital in the last episode, something to kind of be the opposite of what we were seeing. Uh, regardless, though, she's getting this performance because of her donation to the Philharmonic. And uh, she also eloquently talks about uh, how this Brahms piece was Brahms proving he could write in Beethoven's key of choice just to prove that he could do it. And uh, Alexandra notes that he was like that, Pete. He was petty like that. Almost like she knew him, Matt. And this lady, who's never named, who represents the Philharmonic, says that her insight on music history, it has always amazed her. Indeed. And with that, uh, Madame Gow arrives. And I like how she just kind of appears in the background. And, and I don't mean to suggest something mystical or superpowered, but there's just kind of this... I don't know. She she somehow is able to get in there effortlessly, um, which I would expect of someone of Madame Gao's prowess. Um, she says that there's a problem. She says this, of course, privately. The Philharmonic lady has left. Uh, they have encountered a wall in their digging. Pete, somebody built a wall. Yeah, they knew that they would get there eventually, Matt, to this wall, not the building of a wall. Um, and that Gao says they must reconsider, they must uh, rethink the plan. But that's always been the difference between Gao and Alexandra. She's a little bit more stubborn. Um, that if they wanted to take this one from them, whatever this one is, they would have destroyed it, not protected it, which means it's not a wall. But Gao's seen it. It's a door. It must be open. It's meant to be open. By what is the question? And then, Matt, I think when we talk about theories, it's all going to come 
into view here. She says the conviction of the elders of Kunlun was always unwavering. Uh, they think it's a virtue, but in the end, all it ever did was make them predictable. They locked it away, but a lock is not a lock without a key. Hmm. I wonder what could open this door. I'm hoping it's, you know, door has locks, locks have keys, keys have key masters, key master, gatekeeper, gozer. Gozer. Again, I might be completely off. Did did Marvel secretly buy the Ghostbusters properties? And that's the big reveal here. Probably not. I think I would have heard about that over the weekend. Um, there is no Alexandra. There is only Zool. I'm telling you, Pete. I'm telling you. Um, and Pete, in that line that you mentioned how, concerning the predictability of the monks of Kunlun, interesting takeaway there. And I don't know if they're going to dig very deep on this. But just an interesting idea that that with uh, rigidity and with uh, tradition and with things of that sort that 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 can be a downside at, at least according to the point of view of Alexandra so an interesting take there absolutely we move from Gao's knowing look Matt to Jessica Jones hitting up the card catalog files there there's the Twin Oak shipping company who in 1998 uh, changed assets from Sherwin Holdings. And then before that, in 1968, it was Wu Tend Enterprises. You know Wu Tend Enterprises, right, Matt? And then all of the other companies going back and back. There's a Fulgen Industries. There's the uh, rather Asian sounding Yushioka Corporation from 1924. But you got to be kidding me. The last paper that she looks at seems very, very old and handwritten. And she talks to the resource librarian there who tells her that uh, if she's going to go back as far as 1820 that she seems to be looking, she's going to have to go to the historical branch uptown. On the page, this could have been a deadly boring montage here. Uh, it comes to life, though, with acting and editing and props that show that we're slowly moving back in time. As I said earlier, I know in the first uh, for the first episode, I was a little harsh on some of the directorial choices of S.J. Clarkson. But uh, here, once again, it's it's a it, it's a bit of composition that absolutely works. Uh, regardless, though, Pete, with this notion that you need an appointment in the historical branch. No, no, no. She doesn't need an appointment, says Jerry Hogarth, who suddenly appears uh, there to call Jessica off the case. To Josie's we go, where Foggy is catching up with Matt. It's been a long time. He can't tell uh, Josie how much he's missed her place as well, being Mr. Uptown that she calls him now. Um and uh, Foggy's heard about Matt's $11 million settlement. Sure, he wants to stay pro bono, um, but there's the stuff that Foggy's got on his plate now. He's got the big office. He gets to see Marcy a lot after hours, you know, naked, that kind of thing. Um, but They must be doing an art project. Like, yeah, like painting, right? painting, <laughs> yeah, painting the, 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 the female form. But Foggy's talked to Karen. They grabbed coffee, uh, wants to know what their relationship status is, and they're figuring things out, as uh, Matt explains. I just want to point out, he kind of, he does air quotes for figuring things out. It, it crossed my mind. I, again, I know that Matt is not 
truly blind the way one is in our world, uh, since he has this, you know, the wavy fire vision that is his superpower. However, kind of using air quotes, that's a visual that I didn't, I, I would just be curious. I know that in the past we've had some, some people with uh, vision disabilities reach out to us. I was just curious if that is uh, part of the, part of the, the, the parlance for, um, for those that are uh, similarly disabled. Bottom line, though, this air quotes also shows off his bloody knuckles that Tafagi speak volumes. You know, he's been out for his extracurricular activities. Uh, with that, uh, Matt gets really huffy, uh, almost to a point of excess, I dare say. He's ready to leave. Um, but Foggy, no, no, no. Foggy has come with cases, the kind of cases that Matt wants to fight. And it will keep him busy helping people in a safer way. Foggy notes that this is not a long-term solution, but the implication, if it keeps the uh, the devil of hell's kitchen away for the short term, that is at least a short-term solution, Pete. There's a real understanding by Foggy of Matt and Daredevil here that I have to say was unexpected. We've only ever seen, you need to stop being a vigilante, you ruined our childhood plans of being lawyers and, you know, taking down the, the big bad companies. And now it's kind of like, well, I, I'm going to help you stay on the straight and narrow of not being a vigilante. And I really appreciated about, um, you know, this scene, that quality. Back we go to Jessica's story. Uh, she and Hogarth are in presumably the hall of the records office. Uh, Hogarth tells her to walk away from this case. Don't forget, there's Homeland Security, there's FBI, there's other national security concerns. There's hundreds of law enforcement officers on this case. All are amped up in the situation and uh, might result in Jessica getting hurt as they hunt for John Raymond. Uh, Hogarth, however, won't say whether she's doing this to protect Jessica or herself, but suggests that Jessica take the day off, get a drink or five, <laughs> celebrate the fact that Jessica has saved lives today, which I think is an important nugget of truth amidst all the, do we trust Hogarth, don't we, is she hand is, da, 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 da. Jessica saved lives today. Yeah, and that surprised me as well, that the, the show would go there rather than the one-dimensional, I am Jerry Hogarth, we have had problems, I'm just going to look out for myself line that you might expect and yes john raymond's hit a federal watch list and it's a matter of national security and all it's going to take is one overzealous agent who wants to save the world um but with nothing suggesting this man is a terrorist despite all of the um the c4 that was found in his room yes she has performed a public service here and and that's got to be why they allowed her to walk although we know they are keeping tabs on her uh uptown we go to luke uh he's he's at that dive bar pete you know how you can tell it's a dive bar because there's a there's a lady by the door that runs her hand over luke as he walks by that, that says <laughs> that says bad um, and Pete, weaving a tale of money to be made, is Turk Barrett Mamma Jamma. Turk Barrett, the affable, uh, you know, face of of the the gray underworld, Matt, played by our favorite Rob Morgan, also of uh, Stranger Things. Rob Morgan, award-winning actor, just I, I don't know, he he's in all these fantastic projects. Uh, 
he's he's been kind enough a couple of times when we've tweeted out to him he's responded made our day uh and uh so great to see turk barrett up to no good here trying to trying to make a make a couple of bucks here um although you could have put any actor in this scene here but with the character's history and in morgan's hands uh, you know, to, to be trying to to pawn off some some plastic looking gold to these guys at the bar, and then to get pulled into a back room and to to get an impromptu beer bath from a <laughs> a, a, a keg. Um, I, I'd love to know what were the dynamics of of shooting that scene from uh, from Rob. <laughs> Well, uh, Turk Barrett does give a little bit of a story update. Shades and Mariah have ghosted, um, which initially I was like, all right, well, this is more of, you know, in between last time and this time kind of story recap update stuff. However, Shades and Mariah were mentioned in the previous episode as still potentially causing trouble. So the fact that they're out of the picture, A, important update, B, takes them out of play for this particular storyline, which I appreciate because I feel like that's a Luke Cage storyline. And they're just saying, hey, worry about that in Luke Cage season two. Don't worry about that here. Um, it all serves the story, Pete. And Turk explains that there's a new player on the scene here. White hat, real, um, you know, African brother. He's got the Panama hat. He's got the alligator shoes, the white suit. Seen him at 151st and Amsterdam. Pete, I dare say Rob Morgan delivers it with a little bit more panache than, than your recap there. I guess that's, Absolutely. Why, that's why he's doing what he does and we're doing what we do. Um, Luke says that if trying to track down White Hat, uh, if that doesn't pan out, then Turk won't like him. And the scene ends with Turk saying, I don't like you now. It's fantastic. But we love Rob Morgan. Rob Morgan is the man. To Danny and Colleen there heading into the sword shop trying to track down the owner of um, and, and the repairer of Scaramoto Swords. Uh, is it weird, Matt, that she wants to live there? She asks Danny before they see one of the Scamotos that's being sharpened that you don't sharpen unless you intend to use before they find massive amounts of blood. Indeed, the blood trail takes them into the back where there've got to be a good 10 dead people. Uh, the tension of the scene is increased by kind of these shadowy echoes meant to give us a sense of what Danny and Colleen think has happened. Uh, is just, this a redress of Chikara Dojo? I think absolutely. That's, that's what it those, looks like. Those posts there, my eye was really drawn to them and the way that it's lit so darkly and you've got the uh the iron fist color key uh coming through the the window there <laughs> it's greenish that tells us it's iron fist regardless though pete it, it, it's a simple enough uh presentation dead bodies smoky atmospheric lighting but it's really really well done um there's this long looping turning steady cam shot that lets you see the whole room in one continuous shot, um, all the way down to Danny seeing on the wall a scroll revealing Kun Lun. Yeah, and just then, Matt, we see a train and some yellow, which means it's a Luke Cage scene. And he sees a van pull up outside a uh, auto uh, repair shop. Um, White Hat is there. 
there's also what we can make out as several uh, youths from the neighborhood. And he calls Misty. He thinks he's found something. She may want to get a warrant and get down there. She wants to know, is she making arrests? Um, but it's about those kids. He may have found a lead. But pretty quickly, as soon as he sees Cole, that's when he stops giving her information. That's when he, uh, indeed, Pete hangs up on her. Um, clearly, he's deciding to, uh, to get involved himself. Uh, with that, though, Pete, we head back to Hogarth, who's leaving the office. Uh, kind of great use of the uh, the New York City exterior there pulls Foggy in off a conversation with Marcy who only gets like one line like okay right, right? I I saw Marcy there and I'm like oh we're getting Marcy and it's like uh, all right I'll I'll be right here <laughs> that was it it's like f- featured extra really um, regardless though Hogarth tells Foggy to to get ready to help out Jessica Jones keep it all quiet keep the firm out of it. Uh, is she in trouble now? No, but she'll be in trouble soon enough. And Pete, I have to say, on first viewing, I did not connect this scene to the fact, by implication, that when Jessica needs a lawyer later on in the episode, uh, Foggy gets wind of it, we can infer, calls Matt, we can infer, and that's why he shows up. Absolutely. It was a great shot, too, of Hogarth entering the scene through the revolving door there. Some Some really... Um, innovative camera work throughout this episode, but this this former freelancer with a tendency to go rogue, they're they're all worried about her. She's and the rogue one. Is that what you're saying, Pete? Yeah, yeah. She she, she rebels. Might be, she might be getting a uh, a crew together to uh, steal the Death Star plans, and um, all of a sudden, it's the discussion of uh, you know what to do when she's caught a la um, Foggy sending Matt her way. Back we go to Jessica Jones, though, who, who, of course, the two characters were just discussing. She's returning home, notices her doors open a bit. Uh, Her first take is to be worried. Then she thinks it's Malcolm who who has to stop coming in there. But then, no, no, Pete, it's, uh, it's John Raymond who has a gun to Malcolm's head. Moment of tension, which means we go back to the swordsmith. (laughs) The picture of Kun Lun there. Why do they have it? Um, you know, did these what what else did these people know before they were massacred? And then in comes the cleanup crew, Matt, uh, complete with uh, respirators and suits and spray that seems to dissolve the faces and the equipment of uh, the people who were slaughtered. Yeah, and it's a nice effect, however they're achieving it. To where you see the faces starting to melt. It's not over the top. It's not kind of horrific or gross, but visually they're letting things get told here, which I really appreciate because you could have had Colleen saying, look, Danny, they're being melted. Instead, did you we see them get melted? We will allow them to get away with the melting of those people's faces. Instead, hey, they're not going to get away with it. And boom, we're back over to Jessica there who explains that uh, it was Raymond's wife who came to her. Uh, She wished she stayed away uh, with with everything going on here. Malcolm explains, hey, I'm barely on the payroll. And um, they kind of play a little, you know, verbal ping pong as far as, you know, 
who are you working for? I'm not going to tell you. Wait, you're not with them. With who? Tell me. <laughs> uh, back and forth before finally, Matt, there's a shadow at the door and uh, some CGI sword work through the lock. And suddenly Electra is in there ready to take out the trash. Yeah, she's acting almost as like a silent Terminator. Um, she's about to capture uh, John Raymond, but uh, he says, no, you're not going to catch me. And he shoots himself in the head uh, with that. Uh, out Electra goes. Jessica chases after her. Nice little moment where you see kind of Electra swooping down the corners of the flights of stairs. You see it excellent. once. Yeah. And then you kind of hear a bump, ba bump, ba bump. And it's this notion of, you know, okay, well, anybody could anybody could hop the corner on one, but she's going hop, step, step, hop, step, step. And you can really get a sense of how she could quickly get down those stairs. Uh, Jessica follows after, makes it to the street where she's apprehended by Misty Knight, who tells her to put her hands up. Misty has her gun out, her badge on display. Kind of thought you have to say hands up NYPD. I don't know. I'll reach out to some of our listeners who are police officers. Regardless, though. Jessica Jones under arrest back at the sword shop. Colleen comes in the door uh, and takes two of the guys down. Danny takes one. And then the last one who is eventually revealed to be. Of course, he runs away so that we can have this confrontation take place in the alley. Uh, Just as he reveals, he's only cleanup um, and he's taken the mask off. It's Luke who is suddenly there preventing Danny from harming him. Oh man, showdown time. And I love uh, that we have them, you know, both Luke and Danny are there to unquestionably do the right thing and protect people who need protecting. But because of miscommunication or misinterpretation, they're now in opposition. It's really, really nice. Do you want to point out Pete that uh, Luke throws Danny down and Danny says, we've not even started. I had to wonder if that was an improvised line. He has a perfect, uh, uh, Finn Jones has a perfect American accent, but I feel like we've not even started is kind of more British in wording. <laughs> Wouldn't we say we haven't even started, Pete? Would, would we even talk at all American savages, particularly native to the tri-state as you and I are? But um, Luke knocks him down three times here, tells him he's he's got a, uh, just stay down before um, Danny charges up his fist, hits Luke across the face, and knocks him into a wall. Danny in this whole fight has many, many great moves, most of which appear to be, or, or I, I won't even say appear, most of which on camera are performed by Finn Jones. Now, obviously, most of the fighting that you see in film and TV, it's not real hits or it's not, you know, full follow through. But here, Jones has to deliver what appears to be full hits with no effect on Coulter's cage. Um, I mean, this is a fight where the actor and the choreography, it's pitch perfect. Um, also, mid-fight, Cole tries to leave, gets uh, but gets downed by Danny. And um, as you mentioned, Pete... Luke hit by the by the powered up iron fist, at which point NYPD shows up and apparently only sees Cole. Uh, there is one shot from the NYPD side of things where Cole is obvious and the other two aren't. But right. come on, NYPD, there's two other guys there and they just run off, you know, because they're leads of the show, I guess. Right. He's in fairness wearing a, a chemical suit. So something's <laughs> going on 
they're, uh, you know, absent some kind of explanation. Um, it's from there, Matt, that we have uh, Alexandra uh, in front of someone with old hands, and you could quickly make a guess at who it was going to be uh, before she speaks his name. But uh, some rather loaded dialogue here. Everyone else on your side is dead, she tells him. You know who I am. I know who you are. So let's skip the wartime banter. Um, Time is not something she can afford to waste. So her adversary is aware of her urgency. And I I love this on a second viewing. Now for your benefit, uh, not, not for your benefit, but for mine, I'm going to take the blinds off. Try not to bite, old friend. It's undignified. Yeah, I mean, clearly the purpose of the scene is to A, bring Stick into the into the mix, also to inform the audience, you know, we know where Stick's alliances lie, uh, so therefore if she is in opposition, what does that say about her? It's a scene that just sings. I mean, Sigourney Weaver is a pro's pro for a reason. Fantastic dialogue here. Nice reveal. I mean, to do the, and I will take the hood off so the camera can see you. All right, that's... That we would we would accept the fact that she works it into her presentation that she's going to take it off for her benefit when actually it's you know so the TV audience can see that completely works too. And uh, Pete, we go from the gnarled handcuffed hands of Stick to in a police station the gloved hands of Jessica Jones also handcuffed. It's it's all connected by yeah. by cuffs. <laughs> It's also standard protocol, nothing personal, Matt, and they're not coming off. Um, But the the files go down there after Misty explains that they found John Raymond's body in her office slash apartment. Malcolm Duquesne, you know, your friend who's being interrogated down the hall and Jessica one Jones two really big files on the table there, which just excellent acting all the way around in this particular scene. It really is. And I appreciate the fact that they, that they, they include Malcolm in this scene, if only by, uh, by mentioning him, of course he would have been brought in as well to be questioned. Um, you could have gone the, the soap opera route and just say, well, forget about that. Let's cut to the meat of it, which is Misty versus Jessica and soon to be Matt. Um, they're, they're keeping it real, I dare say. Um, is Jessica being charged with a crime? No, but she did interrupt a citywide investigation. Maybe has stolen some evidence. Maybe knows who killed John Raymond. Uh, but but he, shot his, he shot himself. No, no, says Misty. You were chasing someone after all. Yeah, and she wants cooperation here is what Misty's looking for. Uh, Otherwise, it's criminal mischief. It's tampering with evidence. It's petty larceny. But is she a murder suspect? No, but Misty thinks she knows who killed John Raymond. And just like that, Matt, after um, explaining that he shot himself, the door opens. It's Matt Murdock, Jessica Jones. I'm your attorney. Shut your mouth. Pete, the team is coming together. Everyone turn to your right. It's time for the lineup. Pete, let's start with Alexandra continuing to be bad now officially named. 
Yeah, and and again, her name was out there in the in the press. Why we used it in the uh, first episode, but to to get the character's name introduced by Stick there, uh, Stick not exactly a, a white hat though. We're going to discuss a guy named right now White Hat, uh, but we know that Alexandra is bad. Um, yet here's somebody who appreciates classical music, the, who might be old enough to have known Brahms and Beethoven and somebody that Madame Gao continues to, uh, you know, be intimidated by uh, and kowtow to. So clearly not somebody to be trifled with. I just want to see her be bad at this point. Well, you mentioned Madame Gao, and I think that part of the measure of Alexandra's badness is that we know Madame Gao, and to see her continuing to defer to Alexandra is to us a shorthand way to measure both their badness, uh, that of the known quantity of Madame Gao and then the unknown quantity of Alexandra. But, Pete, with six episodes to go, I'm sure we have plenty of bad ahead. How about Jerry Hogarth, Matt? Does she belong on our list here i think she belongs on the list in terms of uh you know if we're doing the lineup all right is it her is it is it woman number three uh i would say she deserves to be in the lineup i have a hard time believing that they're going to turn hogarth unquestionably bad she's the attorney for you know hand hand and hand um i feel like the actress is too um I don't know, has too much, for lack of a better word, geek cred and that sort of thing. Right. Too much pizzazz where if she hasn't, if she wasn't brought on to be a baddie and then she wasn't in the two previous shows that she's been on, I have a hard time believing that she's going to take a truly bad turn here and be, you know, kind of kind of be in on it. Personally, be a I like... sharky lawyer? I don't know, Matt. Is, is that, are we working against type? Let me ask you this then. What about Turk? Turk Barrett is a sweetheart, Pete. Yes, he's trying to sell some 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 counterfeit stuff in this uh, in this moment of need in the city. Yeah, he's maybe had some issues with gun running and other things in the past, but Turk Barrett, he's okay in my book. I think he needs his own show, Matt. Absolutely. Um, what about the White Hat? Then this uh, this African gentleman that uh, Turk explains here. With the Panama hat, the white suit, and the alligator shoes. We don't see much of him in this episode, but we knew, we do see him deploying this cleanup crew. I love that we are getting uh, what appears to be a very interesting, very unique, very powerful new character to the mix. There's probably an argument to be made in the planning stage of these eight episodes. Eh, just stay within the lines of what you have, other than Alexandra, who, big reveal, and you got Sigourney Weaver, but... Whether White Hat is going to be an intermediary who, you know, gets addressed and killed off or addressed and sent to jail at the midpoint of this season, uh, or whether it's a character that continues, I feel like there's just so much potential. Nobody knows his name. He's, uh, you know, flamboyantly dressed. It's almost like a like a turn back to, to the 70s almost. And I want to learn more about this character. Well, let's talk about some other characters who wear White Hats, Matt, and not everybody might know their names but they are certainly good guys and good gals that of course our patrons on patreon.com 
Indeed, we are so proud to be listener-supported, to have uh, people out there helping us with the, uh, the necessary costs that do happen to create the podcast, storage, bandwidth, technical, technical, technical. And uh, thank you one and all who have gone to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek to, uh, to check things out, to get some of the goodies that we have there, and to help make the podcast button go. So whether you're donating at the Alexandra level or whether you're just trying to get your foot in the door, man, like Turk Barrett, there's a place for everybody there at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Fantastic Geek with a P-H, all one word. Time to map out where this story train might be heading with some theories. Pete, first on my list, and uh, I'm not surprised that you uh, you picked up on this theory already, uh, is Alexandra Ageless as well? I know that we've gotten that from Madame Gao. Uh, Alexandra talks uh, of knowing Brahms was like that, like a certain way, uh, being a bit stubborn, a bit of a show-off. Uh, are we going to get you know the Alexandra flashback where there she is in the, I don't know, the 1580s on a pirate ship or something? You know, back back when uh, she was on an island there uh, in prehistoric times or um, when when she was uh, having a child in the middle of Texas uh, way back before the birth of Christ. I don't know, Matt. I I don't know if we're necessarily going to go that far back, but they certainly do seem to be hinting like that. I got to wonder how much of. The other big mystery in this episode, that, of course, being the origin of the 4.6 magnitude earthquake the day before is in some way connected, perhaps, to her seemingly uh, extreme age. I appreciate that we have these eight episodes as opposed to 13, because clearly they're going to have to address uh, the giant hole that was dug out at the end of Daredevil season two, they're going to have to connect that to, uh, to the, uh, earthquake, which is my assumption that the two are related, her agelessness, all these questions are things I expect to get answered in the next eight, uh, pardon me, six episodes. And I'm really excited about it. What's up with the cleanup crew, Matt, um, seeming to, uh, either disintegrate or in some way, mask the identities of the people that have been slaughtered by the hand here's what i imagine is happening you have the top level of the hand hierarchy alexandra and madame gal uh, but at a certain point you want to insulate yourselves from the particular goings-on so for whatever reason the swordsmith operation needs to be taken out they're killed however they were killed uh, I guess presumably Electra, but Electra's there as a killing machine, or whoever did it is there to kill, not to clean up. Um, and then it seems that they've kind of um, shopped out the cleanup to, I'm assuming, White Hat, who has his own nefarious background and uh, nefarious skills. He, in turn, has trained a, a revolving door crew of young men who go in there, get the job done. And uh, Pete, if any of those young men start to ask too many questions, or if the if the police start to get on them, well, that's when uh, some of these courier accidents happen. Was Stick the one dragged away from the swordsmith's shop? Ooh, that is a fun theory I had not considered. I'm gonna say yes because I feel like there's a there's a tighter, cohesive narrative in this 
perhaps because there's eight episodes. Maybe there's always been that level of cohesion with the other seasons. It's just a little less obvious to see the binding over the course of 13 episodes. Uh, I'm going to say yes. And Pete, part of me hopes that they don't necessarily fully connect the dots for us. That's something that happened and we discussed in this episode a few times where there's a little bit of in inferring going on. You don't need to have Foggy. You don't need to have the scene of Foggy calling Matt. Hey, Matt, you know how I asked you to do some cases? Well, here's another case. Jessica Jones. Let's just let it be. Stick is captured. We, the audience, can make that connection. Here's what our detectives picked up in this episode. And Pete, uh, I guess if we're going to use the, the, the police metaphor here, before we get to detectives writing in, Pete, the chief uh, is calling us into her office. Our pal uh, at got collared. Cottage. That's right. And she's 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 demanding our guns and our badges. Uh, she says, you guys spend too much time bashing Iron Fist. We get it. You didn't like it. Let it go and move on. Pete, I hope that we've lived up to that aesthetic in this episode because because I don't like getting yelled at by Donna. She's she's Donna, Pete. Yes. Uh, point taken, Donna. Point absolutely taken. And it had been a discussion um, off mic a couple times during uh, our Iron Fist podcast. So, uh, yeah, uh, enough with, uh, you know, the Iron Fist negativity. This, this is a, a new incarnation of the character and, and away we go. Pete, uh, with that, with that uh, taken care of, with us uh, getting getting back our badges uh, on a probationary basis, have any of the other detectives written in? We've also got a tweet, Matt, from uh, LMD Mary. That would be at Geek Kirk on Twitter. You put it together and you decode her identity as as Mary Kirk, uh, our Patreon top supporter there and she tweeted at me amazing how much more i like danny in someone else's hands than scott buck hashtag the defenders yeah i think that i think that we're getting a slightly different presentation of the character here and uh it's working it's absolutely working Pete, speaking of tweets uh we had uh tweeted out earlier today that we were going to be uh be talking about this episode talking about the episode in which turk barrett appears got a response back from turk barrett himself rob morgan who is at shadow flack that's a shadow f-l-a-c-k thanks for the continued love and support it's uh truly the people that keep Tur turk barrett around i'll check this out when i wrap today he gives the the fist of power the explosion and uh an honor an honor to interact with mr rob morgan that absolutely bowled me over when I saw that. So uh, thank you for reaching out. And uh, we look forward to you. Hope you're listening to this right now. And uh, always a spot for the venerable Rob Morgan on uh, Fantastic Geek Podcasts. Well, Pete, we look forward to hearing from our listeners as uh, Defenders continues to roll out for us. Uh, again, we're doing episodes on Tuesdays and uh, Fridays, although something tells me this episode is going to get up a little early. Uh, Pete, if people want to be in touch with you about Defenders, how can they do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 9,416 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast any way you like. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with the P and the H. 
fantasticgeek.com, fantasticgeek at gmail.com, fantasticgeek on Twitter and Instagram. You can also leave a voicemail on our Google Voice line, 732-707-1815. Call 24-7 and uh, it'll go straight to voicemail. Pete, is there any other way people can be in touch? Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek. Again, with the PH, all one word. Well, with that, Pete, we will be back on Friday to discuss uh, Defenders Episode 103. With that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Take the day off. Have a drink or five.